0: have you guys seen the boys yes
1: oh Uh, my god
0: the last episode that came out last night i can't say anything i can't say (laughs) anything yeah (laughs) i won't say anything except that i might be traumatized oh that's
1: that's good that makes me excited
0: it is fantastic i told you that i read the comic the boys years ago right Uh, yeah Um, i think you mentioned it Yeah, there's a comic book shop in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania that's right in front of the train station. And I found out a few years ago, it's like one of the top five in America. I had no idea, but I just go there for my comics. And I went in and I was like, yeah, I like to read really dark, edgy things like Garth Ennis and like Super God. And without even looking. Literally without looking, the guy just reaches behind him and pulls out the first volume of the boys and drops it on the counter. He's like, I think you'll enjoy this. And when I heard they were making a a show about it on Amazon, it was the exact same reaction as when I found out they were making a Game of Thrones show after I'd read the first four books. I was like, you can't do this on TV. What are you talking about? This can't happen. (laughs) Uh, Well, things have changed. Now, Apparently, to... though I will say the comic is significantly more physically gruesome. Mm. Oh, interesting, But, but, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, that's, less that's psychologically. <laughs> but less psychologically gruesome. Like the characters mm. are much more shallow in the comic. Inter- so oh, when odd. bad things mm. happen to them, or they do bad things, it doesn't hit quite as hard. Mm. Like a good example is Queen Maeve. Uh, without saying anything about the third season. Uh, just in the first two like in the comics she's just kind of like a coked up wonder woman who's like a wine mom and doesn't give a shit and they've really developed her character in the show so when the same terrible things happen i'm just like oh this hurts so much more (laughs) Uh,
1: that's that's good see these guys are good at storytelling i I really like it I, i did watch the um how many seasons has The Boys been on now? Uh, this is the third season. This is the third. So yeah. I guess I've watched the first two. Yeah, and I, and I will. I'll catch up.
2: I'll catch up.
0: It's, uh, yeah, great. And it's a really good deconstruction. It's the best thing since Worm. I've seen it, like, addressing how it would actually be if superheroes had powers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's my feeling yeah. as well.
2: So that it gives us a bit of a lead-in, I suppose, to to introduce <laughs> Matt. Not that he needs much introduction in this community, but uh, uh, hey. many of you may well have uh, first encountered Matt if you came to rationality through HPMOR via Worm and his podcast uh, on on Doof Media with his co-host Scott Daly. Uh, We've got Worm. Uh, that's certainly where I first uh, uh, heard Matt, <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so the. And Matt's our special guest for the for this episode of the Guild of the Rose podcast. Uh, And uh, 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 thank you for taking the time
0: to uh, join us on our podcast, Matt. Absolutely, especially
2: at six a.m. on a Saturday. (laughs) Sure, happy to be here. I'm I'm
1: very much used to fitting in uh, podcasts at weird times, so don't, uh, don't worry about
0: it. I appreciate your lies. Uh, very much. Anyway, um, so we wanted to have you on because we wanted to start talking about not only the Guild of the Rose from my perspective, but that of the other students and the teachers. And as one of the founders who taught our class on practical decision making, we wanted to start with you, Richard. I believe you have some. Good prompts to start us with, because otherwise I'm just going to go off the rails again.
2: Sure. Uh, well, I was going to start actually by asking a little bit about your kind of uh, rationalist origin story. You know, how did you uh, get into the movement? Well, a little bit about your you know kind of personal history that led you here, and how you became sort of sufficiently uh, involved in the movement that you founded an organization. In.
1: Sure, that's that's fun to talk about. And, and maybe maybe we can all share a little bit of that. I mean, I, so I, I think my my rationalist prehistory is probably similar to most people, which would be science fiction. Um, mm. Sort of. Uh, I, I read I read Dune at a fairly young age. I was a big fan of Star Trek: The Next Generation. I, I see both of these as being the sort of science fiction that you consume to uh, uh, give you. The, you know, to, to incept you with the notion that like a better world is possible or or, or mm-hmm. a better sort of a better way of being is possible. Since I guess um, Dune is not actually a better world. Uh, it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a much worse world, actually. But uh, and then when it came to joining the actual modern rationality movement, it was via HPMOR. I believe my brother was the one who told me about HPMOR and recommended it to me. So he he's the one who deserves the ultimate blame. and and then from there I found the sequences and I was the sequences were one of the I think a lot of people have this experience where you read the sequences and you're like every post is just mind-blowing you're like oh my god how does how have I never encountered this before and then you know what's funny is years later you you reread the posts and very often you're like I found this mind-blowing really it seems pretty obvious i think scott alexander talks about this phenomenon actually yeah
2: uh, i, I um, think I, I read most of the sequences with a sense of violent agreement and that like <laughs> <laughs> finally someone else
1: <laughs> yeah yeah me too very mm. much so um and and you know i think i think i just carried this the the sort of sense of like okay this is great what are we gonna do about it now you know mm. um and and that's what led me Ultimately sort of being unsatisfied with the status quo, it's funny i, I was thinking about you know how d- how did I get here and i and I realized that there's a post i'm or not a post a a a bayesian conspiracy podcast that I showed up on in like two thousand nineteen or so where it's just titled freestyle community talk hmm. and I was basically saying like why don't we have like an actual community was my sort of thesis it wasn't like i had it fully articulated at that point um because honestly a lot of a lot of what the guild is is, is a synthesis of ideas from from different people and it, not just mm-hmm. it's not just me by any means um but um
0: that's that's actually really funny uh steven actually sent me a reminder that on the Bayesian conspiracy subreddit in 2016 i made a post saying pretty much the same thing like man we're really smart why are we bad at working together that seems dumb Mm-hmm. <laughs> so apparently yeah. we've both been bothered and ranting about this into the void for a while mm,
2: yeah you know, great right. and i my kind of history in like humanist skeptic atheist type community organizing was mm. of a, a similar vein right the, <laughs> i think a lot some of the problem is that uh the sorts of people who are attracted to this sort of material are not necessarily joiners and yeah. uh no, um, heterodox in their thought, so tend to be difficult to get to agree on anything. <laughs> As, yeah. Um, uh, at least certainly things where there's, um, Things where there's less straightforward a way of resolving what this should be, right? There's a lot of uh, a lot of uh, open questions around how to do that kind of community organizing stuff effectively. It's not readily settleable by some simple experiments, right?
0: <laughs> I find Absolutely. that mm. rationality actually made me more reasonable in that regard because I'm a very disagreeable and argumentative person who wants to be heterodox. Like I definitely fall into that category, mm. but so eliezer says in the sequences uh broken clocks are right twice a day as in it would take more statistically it would be more difficult statistically to always be wrong and that must be true for the public as well so whenever i see someone who's heterodox all the time i'm like okay well the public and the general public can't be wrong about everything so where do you agree with the public on and if they can't give me an answer i'm just like Isn't that a sign you're not being rational and you're being more like moved by your need to feel special and unique? And it actually pushed me to be more reasonable and be like, okay, where am I boring and normal?
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's that's
1: one thing I've I've noticed more and more as I've gotten older. Is I guess you could pithily sum it up as like, if you're so smart, why aren't you rich and popular? Mm -hmm. Um, Because I, I think I think this is a problem that almost everybody who uh, I don't know. Most well, anybody who you call smart suffers from where they they end up uh, carrying along a lot of a lot of copes with them throughout their life that where they tell themselves that it's okay that they're not successful at X, Y, and Z because of reasons. And and you know one one of the I, I, you know I really like David. This is one of the things that I say you you as having brought to the current formulation of the guild is let's identify what we as individuals are subpar at and try to bring that up to par because uh, that's the quickest route to becoming exceptional or above average is just remove all of the ways in which you're below average. (laughs) And (laughs) because of the way math works, (laughs) you'll become above average by definition. Um, That's uh, I, I think like it's the sort of thing that once you once you think about it long enough you realize how powerful that actually is i think maybe the first time you explained it i was like yeah yeah i, I guess um but like the more we've sort of been focusing on that the more i've realized how powerful that actually is
2: okay so we kind of talked a little bit in in general terms about uh, you know how you uh, came to a place where you were interested in founding the guild, but once once you decided you know we we want some more uh, community structure, what were your your next steps and how did you uh, get together with the co-founders of the guild to actually uh, make something more of an official organization?
1: Yeah, sure. So the the abbreviated version is uh in 2018 or so i wrote a post um called uh, uh dialogue on rationalist activism which was a like a, a short story actually about an, an alien coming to earth with a handbook on the the perfect and final form of, of rationale of, of like uh what rationality should look like hmm. and and then having a conversation with a with a human who who debated them about what to do with this book, and a lot of people read this and and liked it, and it sort of like I, I sort of planted a seed out in the the public consciousness, which then like came back to me in a bunch of weird ways over the next several years. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and then I happened to meet David at a Les Wrong meetup uh, when he came to Denver, and then we we basically we became friends on the basis of Worm and Stephen King and so forth. But then we couldn't help talking about this topic. And then uh, basically, through uh, the social web became acquainted with, you know the other people who ended up becoming the founders, where we all just kind of had this feeling that that we should do something about this. And you know, different people had done different things in response to that. And then basically, there were just, you know, group phone calls where we were like, "So what are we going to do about this?" Uh, which over over time and a lot of iteration, led to what is now the guild
0: i think it was the summer of coronavirus really like yeah. that first summer uh we i think we spent like a good four months talking with each other and having weekly meetings before we ever reached out to anyone about the alpha yeah that's true and, and i actually think that was important because w-
1: there there were different views on you know what to do about um this this feeling of of hey we could be doing better and I you know it, it's funny because um richard a minute ago you said you know it's basically you said that organizing rationalists is kind of like herding cats yep. and you know i i think we observed that you bring together like roughly six people who um who have different visions of or, or six or so people who have a vision of of how rationality could be uh, a community, and you have six different visions, and you need to integrate those somehow. And so there does need to I mean, there did need to be some amount of compromise and um and talking things out to like explain like, okay, well, like, why do you think it's important to do it that way because I don't get it, you know? And so it required a lot of 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 work up front and a lot of like iteration on like, okay well, what's the what's the structure going to be? you know how how are we going to arbitrate when there are disagreements about things? And um, uh th- once we had gotten through that process um it wasn't it wasn't hurting cats anymore because we ha- we all basically were on the same page like at this point we are on the same page despite having started mm-hmm. off in different places so finding it, it was sort of a process it, maybe it took longer than than in in some sense you might think it should but it's like well that was pretty important to find like the the kernel that this disparate group of people agreed on uh and then it was much easier having done that to kind of go out into the world and say okay this is what we're trying to do because you you already have a a, a core that that a certain subset of very disparate people have agreed is important hmm. um uh rather than you know because everybody's everybody's conception
0: is idiosyncratic by
1: default and not necessarily widely appealing so we
0: I mean when we first talked Matt I think what I was describing was much closer to the Benny Gesserit and you were thinking much closer to Mentats and there was nothing wrong with that but we were on different pages and it took some conversation to be like okay those are great science fiction examples of what we're pointing towards what do we want to do practically right here and right now and what can we like contribute
1: yeah right i think i think my my conception would have involved like a lot of really hard math tests which <laughs> which is not something that has been uh, preserved although i do think there's a role for uh you know for for having tests be part of like guild advancement but uh, um, certainly yeah, not really super central math
2: tests are not typically the um uh you know the enticing uh, thing to offer for joining <laughs> new members in, uh, right. in the broader culture yeah <laughs>
1: Although they do, appeal, they do appeal to a certain kind of person, right? Like they there's do. a certain kind of person who, who becomes a, a mathematics major or an engineer, mm-hmm. um, at least partly because it's like, oh, this, this seems really challenging and hard and I can kind of flex my intelligence on this. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, yeah, there's a lot of people who obviously that's actively repellent. So you need to find that balance point.
0: I so, like to describe the math as like practicing your punches for boxing. It actually sucks to practice. But you do it because the ability it gives you when you need it is fantastic. Like, I don't really enjoy math, doing math that much beyond a certain level. But I'll be honest, like, knowing that math feels like a superpower. And that's what I think would be awesome to impress upon the people who join the guild who aren't naturally puzzle solvers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: Mm -hmm. Um, So just to follow up a little bit on uh, that. Uh, so where where did you land uh, with respect to the structure of the guild? What, what's the, the nature of that kind of common core you settled on? And maybe uh, a little bit about the uh, kind of exploration. What things did you kind of abandon along your way to that common core? That's a really
1: fun framing. Yeah, and maybe David can help me with this because my audio, autobiographical memory might not be um, sufficient. Um, but but where we've landed, high level, um, you know, we have a basically board of directors uh, with with a pair of CEOs. Um, we, we have the pair of CEOs because we decided that, uh, number one, um, when it's basically an organization that is made up of volunteers and not people working full time, that that it actually makes sense to... Distribute the load of leadership across a, a pair of people, but also it it keeps people it, it keeps the two leaders in check and, and causes them to have to um come to a consensus on decisions which uh, uh, we, we think is useful we, we We've thought a lot about checks and balances and how to kind of build a um, a structure aimed at a certain target and then build a leadership structure designed to preserve that um even in the case of you know individuals not uh, uh, being perfect. Mm-hmm so you know the just like any corporation the board of directors have the power to you know recall the ceo if they feel the need to um or or, or you know vote for vote for a ceo basically and so that's at the at the corporate level
2: um uh and just then to, go ahead my understanding is it's a b corp right uh, which uh is slightly yeah. distinct from a conventional corporation yeah so
1: yeah so b corp is and, and i'm um haven't haven't i don't this remember is, I had the details but yeah
0: this is actually the thing i insisted on mm-hmm. uh whether we were either a b corp or a non-profit because yeah. i felt like the profit incentive would color our perspective if we ever did get successful and the worst thing possible is for us to get successful and then as soon as we're there, be in a place where we're incentivized to start ruining the product we created, which I've seen so many times. Very common good. So, yeah. And I don't blame anyone for it. Like I had to read a lot of books, but a triple bottom line business, a B Corporation, says that there are three main priorities, your shareholders, your stakeholders and the environment. And the reason that's important and the example I had heard was In the event that your company does something that would help your shareholders make a profit, but it would hurt one of the other two groups, normally you actually have to do the terrible thing because you are legally obligated to make decisions that are in the best interest of the shareholders. Like you have a fiduciary relationship. We are not obligated in that way. So if there's a point where we're offered a lot of money, but we think it will hurt the quality of our students' lives as stakeholders or hurt the environment, we can say no. Yes. Uh, You know,
1: so I was kind of vague when I said, you know, uh, uh, making the organization robust against humans being imperfect. But I think actually it might be more accurate to say making it more robust against Moloch, where... Um, if people aren't familiar with the term, it's that Moloch is just a a, a a useful handle to refer to the tendency of all human organizations to become consumed by the, the short term incentives and uh, basically sacrifice higher level value and and the future for um immediate gratification in the present um and and just in in general for uh uh coordination to break down mm-hmm. um so we've 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 tried to think as much as we possibly could about how to like moloch proof the organization and, and you know so so part of that mm-hmm. is just like distributing um leadership decisions at, at a broad enough level not too broad because then like moloch malik mm-hmm. can also enter in a, <laughs> in, in a in a democratic framework as well of course um mm-hmm trying uh, to uh
2: to solve the organizational or institutional alignment issues
1: (laughs) yeah yeah well we did our best i don't think it's i don't don't know if anybody has actually solved this problem ever but uh, I i don't think so.
0: i don't think anyone has solved it but i actually think one of the most important things we did was we picked our like five virtues and our like three end results so a lot of companies have like These are ethics and these are virtues things. But let's be honest here. They're mostly there for PR and HR. And I didn't want that. And by the realization I made is Moloch as a system functionality only happens because people want that short term value, right? The best antidote to Moloch is virtue not there isn't like a system answer it's to have people who are morally strong enough to see that they are have a like an easy answer in front of them and they're not going to take it because it will end up badly for all of them and that's a mixture of wisdom like giving them examples of where this has happened in the past and like strength and courage to do so and so by putting our principles as like the basis of all the decision making filters we have, I think that has helped quite a bit
2: yeah interesting
1: yeah. especially yeah i mean because we we do take that seriously and and we make it an explicit part of how we build things the 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 values um which yeah. which i think is pretty um, it's pretty important and pretty useful and 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 real like uh you know there are dark patterns that that could be employed to boost um engagement right like this is known this is not uh uh this is not a weird thing to say if you're trying to build an organization and you're trying to build engagement like there are ready made uh tricks to to use right Mm. and we have consciously avoided using those because uh we just we don't want to go in that direction we don't want to be those people
2: although i suppose the like the end game of organizational alignment design might be trying to build a structure where even if the entire thing is operated by sociopaths, it still produces a positive outcome. That would be the goal.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm not not sure that it's possible, uh, Mm. (laughs) short of solving the alignment problem, but yeah, that would be the goal. Mm.
0: I mean, I would love to see a council meeting following our rules run by sociopaths, because it would be so amusing to watch them all put on silly hats and try and, like, Outmaneuver each other with like floral bonnets and baseball caps on, yes, yes, it would.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay, then. So, um, you talked to, Well, what we briefly mentioned the alpha before, and that was uh, before I'd uh, become aware of the guild. Uh, and uh, I, I can't, are we still in the beta or have we moved out of that now? Uh,
1: I don't think we've officially moved out of the beta, but um,
2: okay. yeah.
1: um. Yeah, it's it's oh. essentially it's a constantly rolling process, and mm. you know so.
0: Yeah, um, that's I, just think, kind of, I think I yeah. think what we decided is on a close to technical level we're done, but we're waiting to grow our student base to a certain threshold. I'm not sure what that would be. You'd have to ask our two CEOs, but that's when we'll finally switch over and be official, as it as it were.
2: Okay. yeah, the uh, 1.0 release, as it were yeah and and so
1: so you know what you asked a minute ago is like what have we, okay where did we start and then what have we learned and and uh, uh the answer is we've learned a ton you know over the alpha and over the beta you know th- there's been a lot of iteration um you know we used to we didn't used to be called the guild of the rose right we had a, a different name that was a lot of people just kind of reacted negatively to and we're like okay well we can change the name that's easy <laughs> um uh and, and you know there are other things i think i think it's taken time to iterate toward kind of something that was both appealing to uh, the membership and also sustainable um, mm-hmm. for the leadership. Because, you know, the, uh, just like one example of that is in the earliest form of, of things, the courses were just extremely time consuming to construct and, mm-hmm. and difficult. Like I, I spent all of my free time for probably a couple of months building the practical decision making course Um, and I'm glad I did like it was something that I've been wanting to do for a long time like that was one of the bees in my bonnet of of like of like man rationalists sure talk a lot about decision theory and actually don't know decision theory because they Mm -hmm. just obviously don't Um, and and by they I mean like literally everyone who posts on less wrong Um, Mm -hmm. so I I was like I want to teach like correct decision theory Um, just the basics of it not even not even getting really advanced Uh, so anyway, like that wasn't sustainable. Like we we were volunteers, we couldn't keep that up. So the one thing we learned is how to, how to make the, the courses and, you know, now they're called workshops more achievable for us while also maintaining the core, uh, elements of of the quality that we're actually benefiting, uh, the membership. And, um, I think we've successfully navigated that transition
2: at this point. Yeah. Do, do you have any other uh, like reflections on on what you what you learned from the alpha what we've changed uh, since
1: definitely the other highlight would be the implementation of what we're now calling the path system which you know in the abstract is just a, a a level system a rank system um and the reason that's important and the reason I'm really kind of psyched that we've figured that out is we were just missing a mechanism that would make people feel like they were heading somewhere, or that they were engaged in a, in a way where they're trying to accomplish something, right? It's like, okay, well, you know, you can show up to courses at a regular basis. That's not really...
0: It's the difference between going to the gym to jog for 20 or 30 minutes randomly, and you know you're doing something good for yourself, but it's hard to stay motivated because there's nothing concrete and having a distinct workout plan with like real goals and measurable and attainable successes that you can like look at there's they're both going to help you but having a clear progression plan i think matt you were very right about this the path system helps people stay on track as it were and
1: the path system itself saw a lot of um iteration and and just like the guild at large it it saw a lot of input from different members i mean it's funny because i i keep trying to shove tests into everything um so the first iterations of the past system were very heavy on like tests uh you know difficult tests required to pass um ranks Mm -hmm. and and i again like i said before like i still think there's a role for for tests to enforce a level of like Okay, yeah, you did A, B, and C, but can you actually pa- like like show that you have learned something? Right, mm-hmm. there's a role for that, but but right now the path system is more focused on like, are you putting in the reps? Are you putting in the time? Are you showing up? Um, because if you are showing up, and and you know, if you are like solving the the concrete problems in your life, which is you know the the um basically the the character sheet aspect of the the, the current path system, if you are just you know cranking through the process of solving your own problems you do that for a while you do that for a year for example you're going to be in a much better place uh than if you hadn't done that like and 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 will you really be motivated to to do that if you don't have something like the path uh motivating you and, and you know dangling a carrot of of like hey then you get to you know you get to level up you know it's funny because it's like so what I get to I get to level up what does that mean? It's like well people people are motivated by that kind of thing. I'm motivated by that kind of thing. I think most people are.
2: So um, we haven't kind of concretely described exactly what the path is yet, I don't think. We should probably do that.
1: Yeah. Um so so you know any any rank advancement system of any kind in any organization uh is going to generally involve um some aspect of of like have you put in the time and then some aspect of um can you like have have you put in uh uh some level of uh or if you achieved some level of competency right mm-hmm. um and then and then generally depending on the organization there will also be an element of like are you a, are you a good citizen you know mm-hmm. so and there's other things too right but like that's th- those I identify as like the three Uh, the three main things so like have you put in the time in the path system it's simply required that you you know you you identify three courses in a given in a given block of time three courses or three workshops that you have attended and performed well in Uh, that's an indicator that you're actually committed and you're putting in the time to learn Um, and then and then you have to identify three you know bugs three problems in your life that you want to fix um and and you commit to fixing those three things, and then you check in with uh, with the uh, the guild and you know the uh, the testing board, which is me, David, and, and Alex, sort of help you figure out how to how to do that. And then once you have fixed those three problems in your life, then you know that 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 counts as your um your your features, right, in, in the nomenclature of the of the character sheet. That would be your features that you've achieved. You have you have implemented these three features in your life. Um, and so that's saying, like, okay, you've you you haven't just been showing up for the classes, you've also implemented the um the learnings, and you have actually made your life better, right? So that's a sort of it's a sort of test of of it's a sort of practicality test. Mm-hmm. like you're not just showing up for 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 the classes, you're actually doing things. Um and then there's a final tranche, which is just like, are you being a good citizen of the guild? Um, are you uh, are you contributing at some level? Um, are you being, it's just you know, are you exhibiting pro-social behavior? You know, it, mm-hmm. r- right now it, that's almost just like if you have been like lying to people <laughs> and mm-hmm. manipulating and um, and promising things and then not doing it, um, mm-hmm. then it's like okay, well then that's a mark against you, and and we would have a conversation. Um, but it, it's uh, we have more plans for what that might look like in the future. But currently, that's so overall, the path is those three uh, elements, okay. mm-hmm. and and it's meant to kind of keep people on the path of bettering themselves. So you've got I, kind of
2: a combination of uh like a relative progress, like you know, a relative to whatever the baseline was of uh, mm-hmm. your life, uh, and then you've got kind of more absolute competency based things kind of mixed in there together at the moment.
1: That's right. And at mm-hmm. a certain point, like I said, um there might be a written test involved in demonstrating competency for certain for certain things. Mm-hmm. Um and the reason for that is I think it's very valuable to, okay, so like, think about, you know, a degree, like an engineering degree or, mm-hmm. or or you know, it, whatever, like, it's super valuable for you to know, like, oh, you also have a degree in mechanical engineering or whatever. Okay, then mm-hmm. we can have a conversation at a certain level, because mm-hmm. I know that you know, this list of things, and we don't have to, I don't have to tutor you on calculus, we can just start from there. And so there's a benefit to, to being able to say like, oh, okay, if you're above rank X of the guild, then I can just trust that you know XYZ information or, mm-hmm. or skills or, or what have you. Um, we haven't implemented that because we're still um, forging this path, but that's kind of the justification for why you would want to do it that way.
0: Okay. I mean, I think another part of it is one of the inspirations for me was martial arts dojos. And having a black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu so is one of the few things in this world where anyone who has even the vaguest knowledge of what that means will see you and instantly go, "That's a bad motherfucker right there. Mm-hmm. like it it is a signal to the outside world to that you have achieved a level of skill at combat that should be respected to anyone who's even vaguely associated with it. I wanted something similar for the guild, and the only way we can do that is to have ranks and advancements where people outside of the guild will be like, oh my god, you are so successful, or you've improved your life so much, how did you do that? And you can be like, well, I'm a rank 3 in the guild if you think I'm good, imagine what a rank 5 does Yeah, exactly Mm -hmm. Just, you know, meta comment
1: about this (laughs) whole process which I just think is interesting, is like building something is always like 10 times harder than wish casting about it Mm -hmm. um the idea of having a rank system is something that I have been like, yeah, this would be a good idea in, in my we head. We have been or,
0: talking about it since before the alpha in those meetings. Yeah. And we have only like what in the last month or two figured out how to even get something rough out
1: or, or at least figured out how to build something that people are actually joining and being excited about. Yeah. Um, like there was so much iteration, but both behind the curtain and then sort of, you know, in, in the alpha form of the, uh, of of the path system where where it's just like okay well it's obviously it's not working yet. It's not working yet. Right. And it's like but when we were talking about it, it seemed so appealing. Um but it's it's like yeah you you have to be kind of ruthless and, and iterate a ton and hmm. you know all sorts of practical things come up where you're like oh really I have to do all I have to I have to do all this work. I have to make a Google uh, a, a google sheet to keep track of of stuff i, I thought this was just going to be easy you know it's like this, this sort of a perennial problem of humans is is just like
2: Planning talking balancing. about how
1: awesome something's going to be and not willing to put in the time you know and uh so it took a lot of time to figure this out um not, i'm not surprised anybody else
2: go ahead
0: i i actually feel very differently hmm. um so from my perspective i'm constantly impressed by how smoothly things run for us i think that's because i have gotten to observe a lot of organizations at various scales throughout my life and most of them are a disorganized mess like most of them are absolute shit shows that never get anything done like things will languish for years and We just like are so streamlined by comparison. I think because I had a very different comparison point, I feel like, oh, man, we're doing great. Like, I'm very perky most of the time. Yeah, I don't
1: disagree with that at all. I think I think as an organization, we put a lot of time into our processes um, and and we actually are very organized. I mean, I I, I can say that I, I have like a number of, you know, industrial and. And hobby commitments, and I'm like, hey, the guild, the guild's pretty, pretty dang organized. Um, but the implementing something like a ranking system um, is is just a, a difficult task. It, it's at the borderland between like systems and people, mm-hmm. and those are always the hardest things to get right. I mean, just think about like any, you know, any HR department, right? Is synonymous with like the worst thing ever. It's <laughs> it's uh, something that people want to avoid at all costs and it's like well that's that's tends to be what happens when you try to build like a system in 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 which you kind of integrate people as a as a active ingredient um it's really hard to make an an effective uh uh, rank advancement system of any kind
2: Mm. okay so Um, I was going to ask kind of a a compare and contrast type question with uh, the guild and CIFAR, which was kind of another rationalist effort to, you know, uh, level up people uh, in rationalist related Mm
0: -hmm. related skills. Uh, I I will uh, make this a little easier for you, Matt. I, A lot of my suggestions about the guild were directly made after seeing certain failure modes in CIFAR. And I want to be clear, I don't blame CIFAR, just like the first cell phones kind of sucked because they were doing something kind of revolutionary. Of course, CIFAR was going to make mistakes because they were really trying to forge a path that no one had done before. Mm -hmm. But like the one that really got under my craw is I was interested in rationality but, like, for most of my 20s, I was dirt poor. I couldn't afford to take three weeks to go to San Francisco to do that. I was like, and I'm a very involved in leftist political circles. And a sentence I've always heard is, if it's not available to the poor, it's not revolutionary. So that was one distinct difference I knew I wanted to make from CIFAR when we were designing the guild. Matt, what were some of the differences that you thought about and brought up uh, in your article? Yeah, I guess part, you know,
1: it's timely that we're talking about this because I just published an article, unless wrong, um, three days ago, actually, um, titled Carrying the Torch, a Response to Anna Solomon by the Guild of the Rose. And the idea that just to frame this, and and frame my my response you know see uh Anna Solomon who, who's leader of of CIFAR kind of posted this thing where she's like okay look CIFAR isn't closing up shop but we have been struggling um and and here's a lot of the things we've been dealing with and here you know the long long-term frustration points for us and you know it's interesting because we at the guild had identified a lot of these um as like things we wanted to make sure we didn't fall into and just uh or, or or in some cases we just naturally weren't interested in going that direction some of it was because cfar already kind of had a lock on it some of it was just like it's just not our thing it's just not what we're interested in and then some of it was actively like we don't want to end up in that situation um so so overall you know um the biggest obvious difference is cfar is is a you know x number of days intensive workshops where you you physically have to go there and you sit in rooms all day and you do exercises and you listen to lectures and um it's it's very very intense very sort of all consuming for the time that you're there and then you leave and b- based on our our understanding there is some amount of follow up um and there is some gesture toward having like the network of alums but it's not a structure it's not um I mean, it's it's nothing like what we've generated with the path system, for example. The path system is sort of our um semi-explicit attempt to say like people need to be on a track or they just won't keep up with it. They won't implement, they won't keep doing the reps in their daily life. Because what tends to happen, I mean, I mean, you you can see this if you look at like blog posts by people who have gone to CIFAR um, retreats, they'll say like, oh man, you know, I, I learned so much. There's a lot of really cool techniques. I, I feel like these are going to be really applicable. I just hope that I, you know, actually apply them in my life. And it's like, okay, well, hope is not a strategy, to quote um, James Cameron. Um, <laughs> like like that's, you're not gonna actually, especially if it's something with like a lot of cognitive overhead to it. Like a lot of CIFAR techniques, unfortunately, are stuff like, Uh, you know, I don't know, goal factoring where it's like, yeah, great idea. But very often when you're already in a a place of like uh, existential confusion and motivational chaos, the last thing you're going to do is sit down with like a spreadsheet and just of your own volition, like refactor your brain and, and then using your, your cognitive power, just come up with like, ah, this is what I should be doing. Actually. It's like, okay, that, that sounds great and if if we had kind of infinite free will that would be a great solution but actually we need a lot more guardrails than that and we need to be putting in the time regularly as just as just a practice where we we put in the time without thinking right we just we put in the time toward life maintenance without thinking about it not as an as an act of volition um and that's Partly, what the path system is intended to do, and and also, I think maybe even more importantly, something we haven't talked too much about, partly what the cohort system is in, intended to do, because, man, human beings need other people. Um, the degree to which Cifar doesn't attempt to give people a sense of community, I think, is the biggest differentiator. I mean, would you agree, David? Like, I, I think. First and foremost, what we were trying to solve for is rationalist community. Everything else is kind of secondary, like like path system, et cetera. That's all secondary to saying like we need a community where people feel like they're a part of the community and you can bring your problems to the community. You can bring your expertise to the community. You are, you know, you you, you feel a real sense of belonging and meaning from that community. That's what we're attempting to do. That's what the cohorts are aimed at doing: is giving people a, a small group of people with whom they are uh, friends and and allies, and they're all you know they're all trying to to get better together, helping each other. Um, and you know it, it, that to me, like it's so much more helpful to have something like a cohort to be like, hey, I noticed that you're having this problem. Have you tried doing the goal factoring exercise? Like that's the only way that's going to come up to you in, in, in your life, you know? You're not going to remember to do goal factoring unless, you know, you have mm-hmm. somebody who's who's more sane than you and more objective than you in that moment saying, hey, have you thought about applying the tool that you already know how to do, you just aren't thinking of it because you're, um, you
2: know, you're blocked for mm-hmm. some reason. Um, community so, structure and external prompting to help with the, the habit formation and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: That was actually inspired by a sort of real life experience that I semi reference when I when we were thinking about it, which is a lot of the smartest people I know have this flaw or maybe I would call it a systematic error where they're so competent so often that they don't have anything prepared if they're going to have a failure mode. They just don't think about it. And so when failures do happen, they're cataclysmic. Hmm. And one of the people I grew up with between the ages of like 20 to 23 was a guy I knew who was, I'll be honest, maybe not the brightest, but had an incredibly successful business, was very bright. And I realized that he had subconsciously kind of figured out the answer for this, which is. Whenever he would have like a tough problem, he'd call his friends and he's like, let's go to the bar. He'd buy them a few beers and then very casually he'd bring it up. And he had created this system of his own like subconscious cohort of people he could rely on. So he really had this group brain power always working for him. So he ended up punching much higher than his weight class intellectually and being incredibly successful at life. And I would see rationalists struggling with problems that i think are elementary and i was like what's the difference here And i was like he's humble Mm. enough to have a group that he references even if he doesn't think about it that way and the cohort was kind of my attempt to replicate that experience even like against people's wills necessarily
2: (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's a pattern you see a lot with um i'm in academia right there's a lot of smart people who uh you know did very well in school right but if you're that person and then you hit a ceiling of some kind where you found an environment that's actually quite taxing for you it tends not to end well mm-hmm. <laughs> or at least that it tends to be quite a uh, uh you know dramatic experience of having encountered oh this is actually hard i have to work for this now
1: yeah it's interesting you bring that up because my experience in academia is, was, was um, very positive. And, and in fact, I'm even in, I, I'm one of those people who's like, how do you manage to have a bad time in graduate school? Grad, graduate school is supposed to be like the, the, the least immediate pressures put on you of any period in your life. You, you don't have any immediate deliverables. Um, you can just kind of explore fun problems. And it's like, well, the reality is people are actually really bad operating under those conditions people mm-hmm. actually need to have yeah. yeah reinforcement via either like requirements of them or some kind of social reinforcement and the re- and on, and then like you know i back up from myself and i say, well why then, then why did i have such a good time and the answer is well i had a peer i had i had a a, a very close friend and we we were each other's motivation in in a sense we were each other's rivals um, but in, in a friendly sense, but also in a real sense where if he accomplished something amazing, I was happy for him, but also I was like, oh now I have to like catch up, you know. Um and and that was a thing that I think most people don't have. And then in just just in in general in my life, um I don't I've I don't know if I've ever accomplished anything <laughs> that that wasn't the product of at least partnership and and usually like involvement in a group of people who um you know, covered for my inadequacies and you know sort of with whom I could use my strengths and sort of amplify my strengths, you know like like my my um uh, other podcast projects would be literally nothing uh without my co-host scott, who um you know he, he's like the perfect partner for for me um as so we we bring each other we bring our own strengths and and i I think it like it it just it just combines for something that, that uh you know we're we're told is is, is great and fun to listen to and, it, it, and and without without both of us it would be you know it would be nothing obviously you can't have a one-person monologue podcast um so hmm. yeah but anyway they, they group, do exist they're very weird <laughs> Yeah, I guess I guess they do. But I don't think that would be popular if we tried to do that (laughs) or if if I tried to monologue about about worms.
0: (laughs) The ones I've heard that do it okay are almost always storytelling podcasts like Hardcore History or Welcome to Night Vale or something. You Mm -hmm. need to have a storyline. Otherwise, one person's voice is just monotonous.
1: Yeah. And those I mean, I I like some of those, but also some of them I tend to I don't tend to listen to them for as long. I tend to be like, okay, I, I get it, you know, you know. You, you you feel like you you got what that person had to say, and then you're just like, okay, I think I'm done. I think I'm done with this now, you know? Yeah,
0: that's kind of what happened with me and Sam Harris. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh. So, Richard, I have a question for you. Yes. Well, now that you've heard two council members speak about this, as one of our students, how was it on from the inside? How did it feel like being a part of the uh beta I guess
2: yeah I mean the the cohort thing I think has been really quite um positive right now. We have our regular weekly cohort meetings we kind of uh, discuss what we've been up to in the last week. We have a little bit of social accountability for you know there, there are people in my cohort who will who will nag me for not having done the things that I said I was planning to do this week <laughs> mm-hmm. um and yeah, that, that's been, uh, that's been good. Um, I, I enjoyed, uh, it, quite a few of the different workshops. Uh, Matt's decision theory one was, was, uh, uh, one of my favorites. It, it's been interesting actually to see the kind of the transition from, uh, the kind of slightly longer form workshops to the, uh, like one off sessions. Um, and I, I think there's still a, A a balancing act to be to be had there. I think there are definitely some that still have value in kind of of like multi-session structure, uh, but others that work better as like one-off workshops. Uh, So it'll be interesting to see how how that continues to evolve. Um, Mm -hmm. We've had quite a lot of discussion about uh, sort of you know how how we uh, interact in the community right we have a discord uh which is which is good right it's been it's a it's it's a nice place for the community to be based i think actually it's it's a fairly well um designed piece of software for that community uh function um so you know lots of you know threads in there for discussing particular issues uh we did quite a lot of stuff following up on alex's exo brain course and I think also preempting some of Alex's exo-brain course in, in other threads. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so, yeah, yeah that, that's been a, a good resource. Um, we've had a few discussions about kind of the ephemeral nature of the Discord as a resource and what to do for kind of codifying knowledge that uh, gets shared there into a more structured form. Uh, I, I've, I've been pitching a wiki, <laughs> but I, I don't know. Yeah. It's a, a, a yeah. Um,
0: we're not against it. We have but, talked about this as a guild. It's mostly that none of us want to maintain it. If we're being honest.
1: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, j- just to um, my kind of suggestion would be to to take to take that energy and and channel it toward um, discrete articles, which would be like published on the guild website mm-hmm. um, a- as an article about a specific topic now you know that's obviously not a wiki because it's not with
2: editable a it's it's with the link uh, yeah yeah the, the iterative uh, nature of it right because a, a lot of the time um when we have like a discussion thread in um discord on ExoBrains or something like that you know there's a whole kind of people come up with lists of bits of software and stuff and then we like come back later and say okay yeah this has this problems this works really well for this and this sort of a uh, you know accumulation of knowledge over time that's happening in a few of these places that I think is potentially getting a bit uh, lost in the chat history, that it would be nice to have a way of codifying that. But yeah, I totally understand the uh, the issues of uh, doing something I, like uh, running that infrastructure.
0: I think what you're describing would be really awesome. What I'd love to see is an article being posted with some of these ideas and links and then an update article maybe every six months being like okay people in the guild have been experimenting this is the updates that we have like collected here
1: mm-hmm. yeah because you know the, the reason wikipedia as an example works is because there's like huge numbers of people who are um at a high level like maintaining readability and, consistency and uh, you know tr- trimming out things that mm-hmm. are clearly just like added in a moment of of uh, or, or or you know better integrating things that were added indeed, um, yeah. without much thought and and if you don't have that layer then a wiki is just kind of I mean it's really chaotic. no better than like yeah it's chaotic it's it's like a it's like a shared google doc or whatever where it's like yeah I guess the links are all in here but I don't have any context I don't have any sense of You know, just like you were saying, the exo brain stuff—it's like, well, it is a is a list of ten links with minimal explanation. Really useful for anyone. Like that—that's that's why I was sort of pushing towards something like a a review article where Mm -hmm. somebody has actually put in the time to look at the things that were suggested and say, "This is what I like about this one," "I didn't like this one," etc. But um, yeah, that's um. We're we're not like categorically opposed to a wiki. It's just uh, just uh, implementation details, you know. I, I do have to publicly, uh, you know, shame you for not actually having formally joined the path system yet. Um, so you can't speak about the path system and and whether it's um beneficial or not. Because like cur- you know, yes. currently it's optional. We're gonna make it. We're we're moving toward making the
0: path system um just integrated like, into just yeah. the basics yeah mm-hmm. um actually this iterative articles thing gives us a really good segue into your class Matt on decision theory and talking about it a bit more mm-hmm. and how you came up with it and then how we're starting to do iterations on our previous classes to see how much things have stuck so I'll pass mm-hmm. it on to you. Yeah, the decision theory course is sort of my baby. Um I took
1: uh, so okay, so in my graduate studies and in my career also I've had a lot of exposure to I mean what I have taken to calling practical decision theory, although that's my label honestly. Um but but you know basically just the elements of decision theory that are that are very concrete and straightforward and you know the idea of of how to go about taking an, a, you know a business decision usually, although obviously you can apply it to a personal decision and break that down into um, into the core elements that are necessary to then build. Um, either build the decision tree, which would help you make the decision or help you justify the decision or help you communicate about the decision. Um, or in many cases, once you've broken down the problem using the tools of Decision theory. You don't even need to build the decision tree because it just becomes really obvious what you should do, and you you sort of you have unconfused yourself in the course of of breaking the problem down, um, which is totally desirable because you don't want to have to make a decision theory every time you have a problem, right? A decision tree, I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, and then there was also, so, so so I wanted to kind of bring that practical view of decision theory to the rational sphere because. I, I would I would go crazy like reading these discussions of of like abstract decision theory unless wrong, where I would I would just be like okay, I, I like a lot of elementary mistakes are being made. Um, people are treating a lot of this stuff as if it's like esoteric secret knowledge when in reality businesses have been using the basics of of this stuff for like seventy years to to make practical decisions in the business world. And there's a huge amount of institutional knowledge about this. And and in fact, like there are courses on this, you know, in in graduate programs or probably even at the undergraduate level. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. So I was like, okay, less wrong. It's it's fun to talk about different decision theories that might be used at the core of an artificial intelligence. Totally get it. But there is a almost like Dunning-Kruger level thing happening here where Mm -hmm. everyone on less wrong is mistaken about their own level of understanding of these concepts relative to the actual um state of the art and so i was like okay this is my gift to the community Is i'm going to make a course on decision theory i had this idea i had the idea to do a, a sequence on this long before we ever did the guild and then the guild came along and i was like okay this is the perfect medium for me to finally um put this put this together and um uh, put my money where my mouth is. Uh, so, so that's the impetus for why I did that. And, you know, I'm glad to hear that you enjoyed the course, Richard. And, you know, I, I would actually be interested to hear, um, if like, like what has stuck with you and if, if you do find yourself, you know, using any of those mental tools.
2: Um, I mean the, uh, it's mm. a good question uh i've not really actually that much sort of gone through and worked the, uh, a significant decision problem uh, beyond the one i kind of did in in the class but i think one of the things that um would be useful is some kind of tool to help people frame that some kind of you know uh, uh, you know some software tool in a likelihood that would help guide people through that process because it's still quite um, it's still quite complex and daunting to come up with a, a good framing of a problem that you can reduce to a decision tree, right? That there's a lot of um there's a lot of steps in there that you can take but uh, sometimes the decisions you make at any one of those given points feel a bit arbitrary and as though you might want to sort of revisit and tweak them. And that's Mm -hmm. not necessarily always easy to do um, in your kind of like work through almost pen and paper type example. Right. It'd be uh, super useful, I think, to have something that can help implement that, uh, that way of sort of reducing the number of choices you have and tools for sort of coming up with a heuristic way of, Ranking outcomes when you have like a lot of them to choose between, and mm-hmm. yeah, there's a uh, uh, like I, I think it's still a little bit of uh, fine tuning, ba- a little bit of barrier to turning it into practice that is related to tooling. That's that's what yeah. I currently feel as the like the bottleneck for me, and. I kind of started working on trying to make some of my own tools for that, but I didn't get very far because I didn't have the time to follow through on it. But
1: uh, It's actually hard. I mean, I I have actually tried that as well and Mm -hmm. and bounced off of it because um, once you try to do that, you realize how many little choices there are to be made. It's a very general problem. It's a very general problem. And then it's like, well, then if if you want to sacrifice some of that generality, then that's a... That's kind of a choice that you're making to leave out some functionality that you might have wanted, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's it's interesting because could
0: I offer a different perspective, which is I think the class for me was a massive success because first of all, the problem I worked on was one I was really grappling with, which is what I wanted to do when I graduated, Mm -hmm. and it led me to a different conclusion than the one I initially thought. But the reason I was confused, I realized, is once I did the math, all three options that I was looking at were within 10 points of each other. I was like, Mm -hmm. oh, no wonder I was confused. Yeah. And the real value of the class has been the little tricks. Like, I think maybe the most valuable thing I learned from your class, Matt, was when you're not sure about how you would feel about something, Use the coin flip thing where you imagine the best and worst case scenarios as Mm -hmm. contingent on a coin flip, and then ask yourself at what percentage would you be willing to not take the coin flip anymore? Mm -hmm. And that little trick has changed my decision making in subtle but very profound ways. And one of the things I've realized is by using that one heuristic every time I'm a little bit confused. I have now avoided situations that would require me to make these really big, existentially difficult decisions. Instead of doing the hard math more often, it's actually made it so that I run into those situations less often. Mm-hmm.
2: Hmm. Yeah, that's I, this, um, uh, also one that I think uh, s- stuck with me: the uh, the coin flip uh, framing.
1: That's good. That's yeah. That, that's really good because I I think in version two. Of the course, I, I might put even less emphasis on building the decision tree because I think I gave this—I gave a sense that like the point of this course is to learn how to build a decision tree for any for any problem you encounter. And um, to, just to to go uh, to go meta and hook back to something we were talking about before, um, my 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 very close friend from graduate school, uh, he's kind of part of my brain trust, my, my personal brain trust. Who you know, I, I call him and talk to him when I'm trying to, to think through something. And I was sort of describing, you know, my, my attempts to, to make this decision theory course. And he was like, strongly skeptical. He was like, why would I, why would I like what, in what situation would I ever use this stuff? Like, I just make decisions. I just, I just do the thing that seems like the best idea. And I'm like, yeah, no, no. But like, if you're conflicted and he's like, I'm not conflicted. <laughs> it was, it, it was like ultimately, I had to find the formulation of like, you know, haven't you ever been in a position where you have where you're genuinely having difficulty making up your mind about something? And then it's like, okay, and he's like, yeah, I guess so. And I'm like, okay, well then, like, here are the tools you would use to 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 break that apart and and straighten it out in your head. And then if you ultimately needed to, you could make a decision tree to help figure it out and and come to a decision and sort of use, use a framework to rationalize your, your way through that decision. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but, but the, the important part about that process is actually the process of breaking it down into the correct pieces, right? Which in the course identify as Mm -hmm. being, you know, the, the choices you're actually arbitrating between, and then, um, the distinctions or variables that you're actually concerned about on the outcome side. Um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, this, this was, this was actually pretty hard um, to communicate because I think I think people have default ways of seeing these problems that are not necessarily helping them, right? Like part of the reason they're stuck on a decision is because they can't see the variables they're concerned about, or they don't even see the problem as being something where there are specific things that they're worried about and they're trying to balance between Multiple mm-hmm. things that they're worried about, and they don't even, you know, they're they clearly doing that, but they don't see that they're doing that. And just so, just clarifying that can be really helpful.
2: Just making those component factors concrete and reflecting mm-hmm. on them individually and working out how you feel about them. Yeah,
1: yeah, I think you know, just to to put a button in that specifically, like I I, I tried I tried to finish the course saying like if you make a decision tree and the decision tree says to do X, and and you're immediately your immediate feeling is like, Oh no, then you made a mistake somewhere. Like, Mm -hmm. like you shouldn't, like shouldn't feel obligated to go along with what your decision theory, what your decision tree said to do. If you feel like it's the wrong thing, that's just an indicator that you probably didn't successfully break down everything about the problem that you cared about. Um, It's a tool for helping you think not a, not a way to abdicate your thinking to an external source.
0: On Mm -hmm. the other side of that, Um, I had thought I wanted to do a PhD program, but when I broke it down, it turned out the best option for me was just to go immediately into the workforce. And I remember having this distinct feeling when I looked at the numbers of like relief and I hadn't realized that subconsciously I had been obligating myself to like go into higher academia when really I just needed the numbers to clearly tell me like, no, you don't actually want to do this. Mm-hmm. Which I think is the ultimate sign of success for a decision tree, which is when it shows you something you didn't expect, and the moment you see it, you feel like, "Oh, this is just better, clearer." That's that's great
1: to hear, and yeah, we are going to be revisiting that because I, you know, I think that's an important um piece of what I consider to be, you know, clearer thinking. Is is all, all of these tools put together to help you make better decisions and help you understand? Um,
2: help you understand why you might be stuck on a decision to gain insight into your own decision making processes (laughs) yes Yes. Mm -hmm.
0: and i think our best ranked video was your last one xanatos gambits
1: Mm -hmm. probably because of the uh, seo associated with the (laughs) names
0: i mean Um, i think it's important because it's it's not hard to make plans that are pretty resilient, but people don't think that way. And just having that on top of having good decision trees is a superpower. It just reduces so much future friction in your life. Hmm.
2: Yeah, well, it can. Right. I think sometimes make the decisions as to which particular um, like branch to pursue even trickier, right? Because if I've got a yeah. Zanatos Gambit set up and I have a choice before me of like three different good options, what do I do? Th-
0: that's a quality <laughs> problem. Yeah, I know, that's a the good kind problem. Of problems, but... That's the kind of problems I want all of our students to have. You're yeah. absolutely right. I want them to have too many good choices. Mm-hmm. That, then we can teach them classes on how to make good choices when they have like how to make the best choice when they have all good options.
2: Mm hmm. Uh, that was kind of the nature of the problem I felt that I was faced with when I was trying to work through my problem in the class was kind of like future career directions. And I had several good options on the table. But... <laughs> yeah.
1: I think that's what's that's what's so hard about, about these things that people get stuck on. And, and this is something that I actually learned in the course of you know teaching the course and just observing what people were stuck on, is it tended to be things where uh, you're trading off between different what you might call sacred values um, where uh, uh, it's not, you know, very rarely is it like do I get um, this this car or this other car or this third car where the three cars are extremely similar in every way except for like gas mileage and color and whatever. Like, no, usually it's like hmm. you know, do I move across the country to be with my girlfriend or do i stay here and increase the odds that i finish my phd successfully um or you know some some third option where it's like try to have the best of both worlds there and it's like okay well you're you're not like like it's very hard to translate any of those options into like a cash value Mm um they don't they don't um uh uh arbitrate against each other in a clear way, which is, you know, which is why you then introduce the concept of a utility curve. And you, you try to translate these things into, into trade-offs against each other to help you, to help you think it through. Right. Like that's, that's the benefit of that, of that way of thinking about it is, but basically like, yeah, it's by default, people are really hesitant to, uh, to even try to like weigh you know, love versus fulfillment against each other, right? Yeah.
2: And, and they often tend to have elements of uncertainty in outcome as well, right? There's mm-hmm. you know, exactly how much, will, in, in that example, like moving across the country impact on my ability to complete my degree course or whatever, right? That's mm-hmm. a relative unknown until you've tried to do it.
1: <laughs> I should confess publicly yeah. that that is the first major life decision that I apply to Decision Tree to, by the way. Mm. Um, so, and I decided to move across the country to be with my girlfriend.
0: (laughs)
2: So,
0: um, Mm. I mean, I guess mine was the, uh, college thing. And that is now, when did we do that class? Um, I don't remember. It feels
1: like it was about a year ago. I'm not sure
0: exactly. And come September, I'm going to be moving to Colorado and starting my career and just not going to grad school. So it's. The first one that's directly impacted my life. Yeah.
1: And I got three kids out of my decision, so I can't complain.
0: Oh, that's fair.
2: Yeah. I can't really rule on the outcome of mine yet, but looks positive so far.
1: (laughs) Good. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, I never guaranteed it would be the right decision. (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's the, this, you know, that's, that's one of the things about, about making decisions is the uncertainty can be paralyzing. Mm. Um, but all you can do is do the thing that seems the best from where you're standing. Right.
2: Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, Matt, I want to ask one last question before we leave you. Cause you did meet us fairly early, which is what are your visions for the guild? Like, I guess I have two questions then. What is your vision for the guild as an organization? And then what are your visions for what guild? what a person being in the guild should be like? in like i don't know three years five years ten years whatever time frame you want to use we can Mm -hmm. get frank herbert and like ask you in ten thousand years but that Mm -hmm. might be a little bit much
1: i don't think that's too much uh okay so that's a lot actually i mean that's a big that's a big question right um so okay the first part was um what do i what what's my vision for for the guild right that that was that was the question right yeah (laughs) my short-term memory isn't working yeah um so i i want you know to to grow the the membership and that's that's one thing that's almost orthogonal to everything else but in terms of like what the actual experience of, of being in the guild is basically i think the main emphasis is on just the way I phrased it before is putting in the reps. Like every week, are you orienting yourself around the things that you want to accomplish around solving the immediate practical problems in your life? And, um, and then are you, are you learning a little bit? Are you picking up some tools that can help you with that on a regular basis? And that basically translates to, you know, are you using the character sheet aspect of the of the past system. And are you attending the courses and, and, and putting in the time and 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 learning and improving yourself? Um, and that seems that may seem small or, or modest. But I actually think that if you have a practice like that, and you keep up with it, and you're much more likely to keep up with it, if you have incentives, and if you have your cohort that you're doing, you're doing all this stuff with, then after a period of time, um, you know, you just kind of look around and you're like, Wow, my life is like way better. You know, um like I I think I've definitely benefited from being a, you know, a rationalist for like more than 10 years now because I I've been applying sort of these these problem-solving tools that are uh, you know, popular in the rationality community for for that time, but I've been doing it sporadically and like when I have the willpower and energy to do it. And I'm just like, man, what if I had been doing this regularly and habitually for, for 10 years? Like, ho- holy crap, where would I be now? You know, and, and that that's my sort of grounded vision for things, right? Now you could get I, I can get esoteric and I I can say, like, I want to take this much farther than that. Like I wanna, you know, we, we talked about the mentats and the Ben Ages or my my longer term vision would be like, okay, we 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 take all of the people who have committed to that path and then we say you know okay so let's say we we've been we've all been doing this together for 5 years i don't know what sorts of things we will be talking about in 5 years like we, what once you have been living that way for 5 years and we all have and we and we're able to have these conversations um what will we we be focusing on at that point you know i i, I literally can't predict it because i don't know any group of people who have actually gone down that path far enough together there's probably individuals who have gone down that path independently but they don't have a a peer group that they can communicate with and there are groups of people who focus on self-improvement but they don't focus on it in this way you know they my you know
0: the closest group might be the quantified self community because they have good metrics in fact incredibly good metrics Mm -hmm. But even then, I think they fall into the trap of not really improving the non-measurables that we try to focus on, like social networks and like meta thinking and stuff like that. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. And I mean, just, you know, just even having just been in the, the guild is a very young organization. And even in the short time it's been around, like. I can't even count how many times a guild member has just casually been like, oh, yeah, and like, you know, I solved this problem in my life. And and I'm just like, you know, they probably would have solved that problem on their own. But they probably solved it faster, more effectively, and with less stress, because they were part of this structure where they got the support and they got the tools. And I'm like, okay, that's concrete. Like, I can, I, I can feel extremely proud of that. I can feel like, hey, we're on the right track, you know? Um, that's, that's worth a lot to me just to hear that that's been working. And again, that's been working even as we're kind of building the airplane as it's going down the runway. So I think going forward in five years, the thing I'm excited about is actually like, I don't even know what this looks like. You know, I kind of have the shorthand of the Bene Gesserit or the Mentator. It's like, you know, the the idea there for the uninitiated is like an order dedicated to sort of self-cultivation and potential cultivation that's been going on for like 5,000 years. And it's Frank Herbert's, you know, Imagined version of that. The fun thing about Frank Herbert's writing is he he leaves things open ended. He leaves it for you to sort of like color in between the gaps of of what this might actually be, and Hmm. uh, which prompts your imagination, right? But the thing is, I don't really know. I don't really know what this might look like in five years, much less, you know, twenty years. Uh, And it's exciting to me, and I want to be part of that, right? I I I want to be whatever that is, whatever that looks like. I want to be part of that. That's my. uh, I vision.
0: mean, mm-hmm. we're going to be teaching a workshop on physical fitness soon-ish, and that will be the beginning of our Prana Bindu training. Exactly. <laughs> yeah.
1: So, yeah, um, did I answer the full question you asked, or did I answer part of the question you
0: asked? I mean, I guess the one part I didn't answer, or you didn't answer directly, is what would what would you imagine someone in the guild being capable of doing in a few years because like that's what I'm always imagining myself and I've poked at you a few times Mm -hmm. asking this but like from an outside perspective like using the martial arts analogy If I meet a black belt in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and there's a fight, I expect that that guy is going to do movements I've never seen before and somehow just wrap his opponent up in about 15 seconds and just completely immobilize him. I will have no idea how he did it and it will look like he's just a whirlwind of legs and arms and it will just be done.
1: Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to kind of sketch an analogy to to point in the direction that that I'm thinking here. So I'm going to use number one, your, your example you just said is like, okay, well, well, what is an what is a, a, a abstract feature of what you just described? Okay, well, it's a person dealing with an emergency or a crisis in a way that is not just effective, but sort of hyper effective. It, it's like th- they solved a the problem most people would probably fail to solve, and they solved it in a way that is almost supernatural, right? um okay so then let's take another example um somebody with uh you know an engineering degree and maybe a few years of experience in engineering versus um somebody who hasn't taken math beyond high school level and the problem they face is like you know i i need i need to i need to design some practical piece of equipment to solve some problem in my in my household or or even just like i have some sort of I have some sort of mechanical issue that 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 I need to address in my life. Well, if you have if you have the toolkit of an engineering degree, this is trivial in in not always cuz sometimes it's hard, right? But trivial in the sense that you know exactly what tools to reach for, you know exactly how to think about this, you have much experience going through the problem and and you might be able to solve that problem in a way that looks um not only effective but like Supernaturally effective to, to someone who doesn't have those skill sets right mm-hmm. so the, 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 the abstraction I'm going for here is we want to give a skill set that gives people the ability to solve problems very effectively and not just effectively but like without too much stress or struggle or having to think about it. and so you know a really a really practiced and effective guild member to me is somebody who has so much experience solving their own uh problems as they arise and maybe even helping solve the problems of other people in their lives that when a novel situation crops up be it you know a a sort of life decision that would be crippling and, and and highly highly burdensome for most people or an emergency situation they just are are easily able to bring to bear the tools of of clear thinking And problem solving and practical problem solving Mm -hmm. to just totally, totally break it down. And, you know, if not solve it quickly, get to the point where they're implementing solutions much faster than they otherwise would. Right. Mm -hmm. Basically, problem solving becoming the thing
2: that we're optimizing for. That's my vision. That's my hope. So interesting. Any specific class of problems or just uh, a more meta Problem solving
0: emphasis. I the
1: mean, meta one. yeah, I mean, maximally meta, right? Like, hmm. and there, there's a way in which,
0: like, using Matt's analogy, right, of trying to fix something in your house. Imagine there was a member of the guild who wasn't an engineer, but had gone through these classes, learned the basics of decision theory and how to do epistemological, like, thinking as well as how to social network and practically. What I imagine is they get the results that an engineer would with maybe 10 or 20 percent more effort than an engineer would, but like 50 percent of the effort that a non-expert would fumbling their way through just because they've already developed the correct ways of thinking about all problems. Okay, first, I should research it. Then I should ask if anyone has figured out this. Then I should look for novel answers in like unexpected places and ask people to help me.
2: And mm-hmm. I would assume leveraging the network of the guild to find people with the more niche skill set, because there's only right. so much, or you even can just generalize. the niche knowledge. Like yeah, maybe yeah.
0: there's no one nearby who can help you, but they'll be like, "Hey, this forum has all the info you need." Hmm. Whereas on your own, it might have taken you three weeks of searching before you found that forum.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, it, it, but by the way, um, it makes me happy that that you. That you went to the cohort as your first thought, Richard, because that's that's what I would suspect would be the most valuable first pass. Like if it's really a problem where you're like, "Oh crap, I don't know what to do here," then the cohort is probably the first line of defense. And then, but but you know, ideally, the more tools you collect, the more you're able to just solve it on your own, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, um, the, the general lesson that I learned from becoming more expert in any given area is how little I know about every other given area, and thus I'm inclined to you know find someone else with the, yeah. with the experience in that domain to, to help me on that problem. Yeah.
0: By the yeah. way, I have a very similar vision map, but I try to imagine the day to day, not the emergency situations. And what mm. I see on the day to day level is that most people have this friction, they, all these little friction points throughout their lives that just drain them. And on top of that, when they have novel problems because they have so little energy, they have to like and so little like tools in their tool bag to deal with them. They have to do it the brute force way of like, okay, now I have to think this through. I imagine that someone who's been doing the work of the guild and just iteratively improving on their character sheet in five years just moves through life with a kind of surreal grace (laughs) because they've removed so many of the friction points. And they've learned so many skills to deal with like problems before they even get to the stage where they need to be like researched or ask anyone in their cohort that those things happen just less and less frequently until the point where a real problem like that only arises once every few years. And it's usually something completely out of your control. Mm, The slow, the chronic,
2: the systematic problems that are barriers to acute problem solving uh, when it comes up yeah i, I like that
1: a lot um hmm. you know my a concrete example of that might be um you know everybody's everybody's first baby is you know sort of like a bomb hitting their life like they 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 don't know what to do there's a lot of thrashing there's a lot of stress um and then like the third baby comes along and like somehow the third baby is easier to take care of despite the fact that you're taking care of two other children, right? Hmm. Like, well, that doesn't make sense. Well, it's like, yeah, it does make sense. Obviously, you you learned systems, you learned what to expect. You've you've implemented um you've implemented those systems. You've already made a lot of decisions that hmm. simplify your life and uh and, and it's just easier and it's like, yeah, so so the more you focus on systems thinking and the more you focus on making decisions that are like something that's sustainable and, and you know, a, a single decision that eliminates other downstream complexities, um, the faster you get to that point, right? The faster mm-hmm. you get to the point of, of living as if you have already had the third baby, even though maybe you're still on the first baby, because yeah. you're just thinking more systematically.
2: Like, you a good cached example. a bunch of computation. You've already written a bunch of subroutines that you can just invoke for the new problem. <laughs> exactly.
0: Like, okay, so mm-hmm. for the example you're giving, Matt, If you and your partner want to have a child, my brother uh, had this experience recently. Him and his girlfriend are probably going to get married and they were talking about kids. Um, For the last year, her sister and their baby have had to live with them. So my brother has effectively had the experience because she moved in when she was like the baby was two months old. So he did miss the first two months, but he has had the experience of having a child without having a child. He's already built those subroutines. And I'm kind of glad because I think my brother wouldn't have been great on the first one on his own. But like in a very real way, he got to skip a lot of that nervousness by not having it be his kid. But because it's his girlfriend, soon his wife's sister, like, you know, there's still a strong emotional attachment. He's still going to care about it. And he got to learn it in a very decompressed way.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know and and you you get you you kind of remove the the fear of the thing, and that actually helps a lot. I mean, I think in general that's one thing the that I'd like to see happen is is like you just gain the confidence to deal with new situations in general like in a in a very generalized sense. I understand that you know for a certain type of person who may who may be listening like it may sound extremely unrealistic to say like, okay, so your goal is like general hyper- uh." hyper Hypercompetency across all domains, and I'm and I, and I like I you know I hear you, and I'm like that's not really quite what I'm saying. Actually, it's more just like a lack of terror in the face of uncertainty that then translates to increased competency, and then snowballs toward a kind of more quickly achieving a generalized competency. That's more, hmm. you know, it, it's hard to talk about things at, at such a general level, honestly. Um, it's I... funny.
0: My description, maybe I'm wrong, but I would describe what you're saying is we're not trying to make people who are experts at everything. We're trying to make people who, when faced with any problem, will most effectively get from, like, their problem to the solution and get the, like, basic 20% of the information they need out of any huge repository of information, like, seamlessly. Such that they're never really experts, but they're always competent or just above competent.
1: Mm-hmm. It's funny. I mean, you you and I keep using the word they, but what we really mean is we because we we are building this, at, at least in part, to be like, I want to be able to do that personally.
0: <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to lie. There is a class that I want to teach mostly because I want to become an expert in it myself, which mm-hmm. is math magicians which is a class I've seen where you use every trick that those people who mm-hmm. do like high-level math calculations do in their head. Because I feel like that's one of those skills that is useless on its own, but when combined with everything else could create a hyper-competence, like the ability to quickly learn almost any other field when you add it on top.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, mm-hmm. I agree. I like that. Yeah, no, that's not move prior attempts to solve similar kind of problems I think have relied on uh, like having a pre-cached response that fits with some worldview that won't necessarily work well in any given scenario, but might have a decent chance of working in commonly encountered ones, because they're usually kind of evolved versions. I'm thinking a little bit of like organized religion almost, right? They have some kind of pre-cached way of interacting with a new scenario that's consistent with whatever the, you know, theological frame is. But Mm -hmm. oftentimes, if that's a novel scenario that this ideological structure hasn't encountered before, it falls completely flat. But they're very certain about what they should do next.
0: (laughs) And it's interesting to look at the religious organizations that have survived and thrived, and even in bad times like this, like, for example, Judaism and the Mm -hmm. Jesuits and Lutheranism, because all three are faiths that like have questioning and grappling and evolution as parts hmm. of their core structure. And so while they, are, I don't think they will ever be as mimetically robust as non-religious structures, just because there's a lot of flaws in them still, hmm. they do much, much better than traditional religions in a lot of ways because they're used to it. Like the... Judaism is infamous for its internal debates about novel structures and how things should be interpreted in ways that are reasonable. Mm-hmm. And that allows them, I mean, I don't know if you guys have read all the Dune books, but there are literally Jews in the last two. And the last two take place like 5,000 years after the first Dune book. So it's like 10, 15,000 years from when are they left Earth. And he, they're like, yeah, the Jews are still around. They're still a coherent group because of their ability to evolve. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, gotta, Frank Herbert has... Idea. I don't know. Frank Herbert has very surprisingly vi- Semitic, like, very pro-Jewish beliefs in the last two Dune books, which I did not expect when I was reading them. <laughs> interesting, I haven't read
1: those, actually. It gets far. weird, yeah. brah.
0: It gets weird, brah. <laughs> um, that's, that's good. You know, you know
1: it's funny because, like, I don't think this is all that ridiculous like what we're saying because clearly there are there are groups, you know, think about like elite military units where those, you know, yes, it's a focus on combat, but also there's a pretty broad focus on a lot of different abilities and skills and mm-hmm. and it's not just like, oh, you know how to scuba dive in cold water really well due to your training. It's like I think I think there's eventually and accrued general sort of calmness under pressure and confidence that no matter how bad the situation is you're you're going to get out of it which builds after um you know these you know elite military type type individuals have put themselves through a ton of stuff mm. um so that's what i mean when i say general competency
0: I mean, they always joke that Navy SEALs or Marines are like the million dollar man because of how much money they have to put into training them. And a big part of it isn't like the physical training, because you can do that in boot camp. Like that, that's not the hard part. The hard part is, okay, you're scuba diving underwater at night and it's cold. Okay, that's difficult on its own. Great. You have 30 minutes while you're tied up to untie yourself underwater, get to shore, and defuse a fake bomb.
2: Yeah, very um yeah. like heavily constrained problems. <laughs> yeah, right. And, well, and literally you have to constrained,
0: yeah.
1: you have to build the internal tools, like the mental tools to solve it, right? Like I mm-hmm. think that that that's one one fun thing about Navy Steel School in particular is like um from from, from stories I've heard, uh uh people who are objectively, you know, it, more fit, or, or like maybe even the most physically fit people. In a given uh, class of of Navy Seal trainees, will be the ones who drop out because they lack that mental toughness. Whereas people who are maybe even subpar in you know cardiovascular endurance and strength, mm-hmm. but they just they're just not gonna give up. They're just not gonna stop. They're gonna push themselves until they you know literally vomit every day from from str- from physical uh, stress they're not going to they're not going to mentally give up and that's actually the quality that they're looking for they mm. they're, they're looking for mental
2: um yeah. indefatigability and uh and one of the things that always struck me about the uh, like the astronauts and selection process that this the, the, you know the the early one was they were more or less selecting for people who could just be preternaturally calm under conditions where like most normal humans would not be remotely calm so uh-huh. the ability to, you know, like, start doing some right. calculus you're selecting while you're for... spinning at 3Gs in a spacecraft that might burn up is, you know, that, that's unusual. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> that's,
0: uh, I would have been a great astronaut.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's probably no surprise that a lot of them came from, like, the Air Force or other places where they were probably put in a lot of hmm. stressful situations. Although, you know, I think there's some degree of just, like, they're kind of born that way, you know? Hmm.
0: I mean, I think it's because they're trying to escape Earth. Half of all astronauts come from the state of Ohio, which means Ohio <laughs> is so terrible that like its citizens are trying to leave the fucking planet. That is my best theory currently. Uh, that's uh, probably something to that. You know, <laughs> I think Ohio might be Arrakis. Oh God, it is. Um, so suburban Arrakis, just full of Harkonnen everywhere. Oh my God. But, um while that's a great example i think we don't want to be quite as extreme for the guild so i don't want to scare anyone away into thinking that your final test is we're going to be like throwing you in the ocean maybe when you get to rank 10 but as a as a, one of the leaders of the guild i'm only at like rank 2 or 3 and i haven't done that so i don't think that would be fair to do to you
1: well yeah i mean the way i see it is uh, or at least the way we've we've constructed this thing is the real backbone of of the test is like are you Are you identifying your own problems in your own life and solving those? That's uh, 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 like (laughs) everybody's life is already plenty complicated. Just, you know, the heroic task of tackling your own um, problems and circumstances and doing it aggressively and successfully is, you know, the test. I don't need to throw you into, you know, a, a harbor full of icebergs and tell you to untie your hands. like. I mean, that's cool and everything, and it's it sort of sort of has its own mystique, which is why we talk about these things, right? It's why we talk about the Navy SEALs, but you know, maybe it's unsexy to say, but like I think just just uh, uh living your life with with grace and skill is quite an appealing uh, goal and quite an appealing way to live, uh, and 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 the way I strive to to live. So, um, and the guild is helping me do that personally.
0: I would say that that's actually only stage one of what I imagine. I really believe that I don't know who the quote is always misattributed to. I always hear it's Abraham Lincoln, but people overestimate what they can do in a year and underestimate what they can do in a decade. I personally think that after about five years, most people will have actually gotten most of their life on autopilot. Like It took me close to 10 or 15 years to do it. But I had no structure like the guild to help me. Like you were saying, Matt, like I had no peers except for Errol to kind of be my rival. And, you know, we only had each other for a long time. So. I really believe that that's like the first phase. But after that, you move into a phase where you're like, okay, my life isn't perfect, but I'm either solved most of it or on the way to solving it. Now I can devote my energy to helping others Mm -hmm. and like building new skills. Yeah,
1: I I think that's really important actually, and this is something we've talked about quite a bit. Is like one difficulty of making a generally useful system for human beings is that human beings are not static. Uh, we evolve over time, and the pro like the problems that I have and the solutions that I needed when I was twenty are radically radically different from the ones that I have now. I mean, I'm I'm you know officially in my late thirties, and Ah, uh, it would be very easy for me to actually just kind of coast for the rest of my life. You know, I mean, barring occasional emergencies which will likely crop up, I kind of have everything dialed in to 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 a glide path. I could just kind of could just kind of keep vibing until I die, and I would be fine. But that's not the life I want to live, right? I don't want to. I don't want to be the kind of person who just glides into his grave. And and so I need a different set of structures to help me figure out, like, okay, well, where do I want to direct my energies? Because I have the basics figured out. I have the basics figured out that 20-year-old me definitely did not have figured out, right? So that's totally different sort of set of problems, different set of solutions. But I think, you know, being on the rails of, well, figure out what's not working in your life or where you're dissatisfied and formalize that into a specific thing that you want to solve and then work on that like that keeps working regardless of whether you're 20 or whether you're 50 i i I would think Mm -hmm. um
0: yeah like on a real level i think that that's i'm on a kind of similar path like i have one last kind of hurdle and then i'm essentially on the glide path as well mm -hmm. and i want What I've realized is a lot of people think that that is the end goal. But as we see from suicide rates of like rich people's children, Mm -hmm. the glide path is not a fulfilling one. And so it's important to get people's Maslow's hierarchy of needs, like those bottom two layers set and to have the guild help them get past those bottlenecks. But once they're there, helping them build structures, like have structures already built. So they can immediately put their efforts towards community building and helping their direct, like, environment. By the way, that's one of our anti-cult structures, which is cults tend to isolate you. And one of the basic rules we have is at some point you have to do, like, some service or community project for your actual physical community around you. Yeah. Not the guild. Admittedly, we haven't really integrated that yet, but that's just because the, the path system is pretty early days. But that is going to be a genuine part of it. Just like an Eagle Scout has to do something for their final project, doing something for your local community will solve so many other issues downstream that it is kind of crazy. And it prevents that kind of far failure mode of falling into an ivory tower and kind of cheerleading to people who already know the things you're talking about.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly.
0: Like, I don't want the Guild to just be for rationalists. In my ideal world, the Guild has members who are old women who are, like, Go champions online and, like, young uh, young orphans from Jakarta who spend their time, like, digging through sewers and, like, reading things that we put out online. I want us to be for everyone.
1: I definitely. Um, Want to emphasize. I, I don't. I don't think the word rationalist appears very many times on our website, and like, that's just because it's like I. I think what we're trying to do is much, much bigger than uh, people who have read the writings of Eliezer Yudkowski and found them to be intellectually stimulating. Um, you know, I. I. I don't think that there's any reason at all to be limited to um, that corner of uh, of the social sphere.
0: I would describe the difference as this. What Eliezer Yudkowski did was write a book on biomechanics on how the body moves, and we're trying to create a martial art. Mm-hmm. And like obviously his work is hyper influential and like incredibly useful. But when the rubber meets the road, sometimes we're gonna have to just throw out what he wrote because it just doesn't apply, or we're gonna have to be very creative about how we use it or look for new sources. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Matt, I don't want to hold you any longer. Uh, Richard, do you have any further questions for our guest?
2: I don't think so, no. I was just going to ask if uh, there were any closing remarks, anything that we haven't uh, covered yet. Anything, anything you want so to want plug? To,
0: yeah. Plugs. Anything you want to plug besides the Guild?
1: Oh, I mean, the main thing that I would plug, I guess, would be if you're a fan of Stephen King, the the, uh, the author. Um you might want to check out my podcast uh, Kingslingers where uh, me and my co-host Scott uh, uh, discuss the dark tower novels and and then and then a lot of other Stephen King novels. Uh, we have a lot of fun doing that. I think it's a good podcast. And your
0: episodes on the Talisman were very good. Thank you. <laughs> um that is yeah
1: that and then you know that's check out uh,
0: dot <laughs> .org Oh, crap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we got a .org. It's fancy. .org. You're right. You're right. Of course. And with that, we will let our listeners go. We hope you all have a great week. And hopefully this has been a restful experience. And we've given you something to think about. Thanks. And take care. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye.